Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So hello and welcome everyone. I'm Camilla Jansen, a GP in the New Forest in Hampshire, and I've got Matt Dryden here with me today, who's an infectious disease and microbiology consultant and a leading expert in Lyme disease. He's hopefully going to help us improve our recognition of Lyme disease and its various guises and advise us of appropriate and timely management, as well as increase our understanding of the use of appropriate serology and the practical applications of this. So thank you for coming along, Matt. Welcome. Would you mind you, introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your background? Yes, thank you very much, Camilla. I'm uh, Matthew Dryden. I've recently retired uh, as a consultant from Hampshire Hospitals, but I'm still working uh, in Ripple, the rare and imported pathogens laboratory in Port and Down. Uh, Ripple is the um, uh, is the civilian side of Port and Down, uh, and it offers a tertiary infectious diseases diagnostic and consultative service for imported fevers largely, but it also happens to be the reference centre for Lyme uh, diagnosis as well. Lovely. And um, can you give us a bit of an overview of Lyme disease and its prevalence locally and compare that to sort of worldwide prevalence? Yes. Um, I I think our our area of of England, the south of England, really stretching from west to east, has the highest prevalence of of Lyme disease of anywhere in the UK. It is not just confined to the New Forest. Uh, I think the spread of deer across the countryside and with them, the, their attendant ticks have increased the distribution of Lyme disease right across the south of England. In terms of sort of overall prevalence, though, uh, it's been estimated that the uh, UK uh, incidence of, of Lyme disease is about 2.5 per 100,000 population, which is about uh, a hundredth of the incidence of uh, Lyme disease in parts of Central Europe and Scandinavia. So there is a much lower level of Lyme disease uh, in the UK and in England than there is uh, in parts of Europe. That's quite interesting because I always think of the New Forest particularly being very high prevalence. But as you say, Europe has 100 times the prevalence in certain areas. Exactly. And um, I always find it useful to break Lyme disease down into different stages, as well as thinking of it in the context of chronic fatigue triggered by Lyme infection. Are you happy to talk us through these different stages and presentations? Yes, uh, certainly. Um, the, the, um, the, the, I might just mention first that the Lyme Reference Lab uh, diagnoses about 1,500 cases of Lyme disease each year. It varies from year to year, so there is a bit of oscillation. Uh, I mentioned that there has been some increase in cases over the last uh, 15 years or so. Uh, but there's probably many more cases of Lyme disease because I think many present to primary care uh, and don't have uh, com- com- confirmatory serological diagnosis. So the stages that we've discussed are um, threefold, really. So there's the primary inoculation of the bacterium. It's a spirochete bacterium uh, inoculated by the exodes ricinus tick. So you have to have a tick bite to get Lyme disease. Uh, and um, you get primary uh, multiplication at the primary site. And that usually results in a rash. And that's the, um, the, the clinical presentation for most people with primary Lyme. Uh, and And that is a particularly common presentation in primary care. So it's important to uh, think about that and recognise that, particularly in in our high incidence areas in the south. 
the organism will then, um, having multiplied at the primary site, will then disseminate throughout the body. There's a, there's, there, it's thought that there is a brief hematogenous transmission, so it gets into the blood, but it also seems to have other modes of, of spread within the body, possibly traveling up the nerve axons to the um, uh, dorsal root ganglia uh, and, and sitting there causing neurological uh, manifestations. The then sort of weeks to months after the primary infection, uh, and I should mention too that in the primary infection there can be some element of systemic disturbance, so a fever, arthralgia, myalgia, that sort of thing. Um, but some weeks to months later, you can then get the secondary manifestations of Lyme disease. Now, in in the UK, uh, the, the commonest secondary manifestations are neurological. We often think of Lyme disease as causing arthritis. Uh, that's the commonest secondary manifestation in North America, where the strain of Borrelia burgdorferi is slightly different. And I think it just has a, a sort of tissue tropism in North America for, for joints, whereas in, in Europe, the commonest tissue tropism is, is neurological. So, um, so the second the commonest secondary manifestation is neurological. Um, when we've looked at our cases in central Hampshire over many years, uh, about 16% of presentations of Lyme disease that we have been directly involved in have been neurological. And the commonest presentation is a cranial nerve palsy, usually fifth, uh, sorry, usually seventh, but you can get uh, multiple um, cranial nerves involved. So Bell's palsy is usually the commonest um, presentation. Radiculopathies are also very common, and they can occur anywhere in the body involving the thorax, the abdomen, um, the lower limbs, uh, and usually presenting as, as pain or sensory disturbance. And um, we have a minority of neurological cases presenting as meningitis or meningoencephalitis. And obviously those patients are, are pretty unwell. And they have positive um, findings on um, lumbar puncture. Okay, thank you. Interesting. And going back to the early presentation, the localised phase, um, with multiplication at the primary site, um, we're looking at the typical rash, the erythema migrans. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, well, the, the, the classical description of erythema migrans is the circular bullseye rash. Um, and so you get an enlarging circular rash that um, you, you'll also get a little bit of inflammation from an insect or indeed a tick bite, but that will not be much more than a few millimeters. But if it starts to expand more than more than, you know, four to five um, centimeters uh, and continues to expand, then that is suggestive of erythema migrans. It's not always a bullseye rash. Um, if you get bitten by the tick, and usually the tick that bites you, it may be a nymph tick, which is only the size of a, of a freckle. So many people do not notice that. Uh, and of course, children rolling around the grass may pick up a tick uh, underneath the hairline, so a rash is never noticed. Um, and if the bite is in a skin fold or the groin or a natal cleft, um, the rash may be um, uh, inapparent and not noticed uh, at all. And I'm right in thinking they like warm nooks and crannies because I've seen someone present with one on their perineum. And it's amazing if they're wearing trousers, long trousers, being for a walk in the forest, how far that they can travel. 
Exactly. It's, it's, it's amazing how they can, you know, get in at an ankle and, and end up, uh, as you say, in the perineal groin or in the umbilicus. Uh, and they do like uh, warm nooks and crannies for sure. And they can be really hard to find, um, these nymph ticks. And interestingly, we often see people who've found an attached tick and they've maybe sort of dug around. So you often may get an area of local cellulitis as a result or infection as a result that may be sort of one or two centimetres. And it's very difficult to know when to give antibiotics, whether it's a local inflammation and infection as a result of digging around or when to treat it as um, the migraines rash because obviously embarking on a three-week course of antibiotics is something that we don't want to do unless we're sure that it is um, Lyme disease. Yeah, it, uh, it, you know, it does rely again on the um, amazing expertise of GPs really pick, using their their uh, their, uh, their clinical skills to decide when to treat because uh, serology is going to be negative usually when the primary rash occurs so one's not really helped by doing a blood test at this stage um, so I think you have to go on your um, on your your clinical impressions uh, at the end of the day there's uh, there's although the nice guidelines um, recommend three weeks of treatment. Um, in fact, there's pretty good data from Central Europe saying that a week of uh, doxycycline is as good as longer courses. Um, the problem with a shorter course um, is, is that it does contravene the NICE guidelines. And if there are complications later on, then the patients tend to get upset that they've been given a, a shorter course. But really, I, in my view, it's almost as clinically effective. And we don't, is, sorry. is there any space for prophylactic antibiotics if people have had a confirmed tick um, attachment, but no reaction. Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, the in in Central Europe, where the incidence, as we've already said, is a hundred times higher, they often do give prophylaxis, a hundred or two hundred milligrams of stat of doxycycline, just a single dose. Um, studies in the UK have shown that um, uh, ticks carrying Borrelia burgdorferi range from about zero to eight or nine percent. So. You know, you, you you can get ninety tick bites before you get a single case of of Lyme disease. So the tendency in the UK has been not to offer prophylaxis, but I think if there's a lot of um, patient anxiety or the um, uh, you know the, the the area is a, a particularly hot, high incidence area, a hot spot for Lyme disease, then um, uh, then it, you know it's reasonable to give a single dose of doxycycline, but it's not recommended um, by the national guidelines through Nice. And would that be 200 milligrams of doxycycline? Yeah, for an adult, 200 milligrams stat doxycycline. And what time frame from when they were bitten? So if they present 10 days later, for example, that haven't um, mounted a rash? Yeah, 10 days is probably a bit late. And in fact, for prophylaxis, most people are going to present later to GPs, aren't they? Because there's going to be a delay in getting an appointment and they won't bother their GP unless they're concerned about something. Um, but once you get to about 10 days, I mean, in a sense, you ought to, if you think it's Lyme disease, you probably ought to give a therapeutic course rather than prophylaxis. Because I think the problem with um, the anxiety related to it, if they are asymptomatic other than have positive sighting and removal of a tick to embark them on three weeks of antibiotics at that stage is yeah. quite a long course. Yeah, uh, exactly. So it's yeah. difficult to know when to reassure. And if you do reassure, what should they be looking out for? What's the safety netting information? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. It, it, it is tricky at that point. Um, 
but but I think one has just had to make a clinical decision that um, it is or isn't Lyme disease. And if it is, give a therapeutic course. If it isn't, uh, I mean, if you get it really early, give a dose of prophylaxis, but probably by 10 days, uh, if it is Lyme disease, the organism starting to multiply and you really need more than just a single dose. And at that stage, are you potentially saying you could give a week's course of doxycycline well, off license? That isn't- I, I am. I am saying that, and and yes, uh, it's it's not really a question of being licensed. It's it's a question of uh, the 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 nice guidance and the and the nice guidance was heavily influenced, in my view, by um, patient advocacy groups demanding longer courses. So I don't think there's much much clinical evidence for these longer courses. So I, in, uh, my opinion is that it would be safe to give a week's course at that stage. And, and if we see people early on with the sort of a bit of inflammation around the removal site of the tick, then it's um, considered appropriate to watch and wait. And if it becomes 5P or bigger, then that's the point that you would treat with a treatment course of um, antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And probably more than 5P, actually, you know, sort of uh, a 10P plus. OK, so, lovely. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, centimetre diameter. And it's interesting thinking about the early disseminated phase and the um, palsies, because historically, I'd I'd always associated Lyme disease with arthritis. But as you say, that's seen much more in Americas. Yes. We see the palsies, specifically Bell's palsy, as a cause of this. So we would be then advocating serology at that stage. Exactly. Yeah. So once you've got the neurological symptoms, you're weeks to months into the infection. And it's 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 uh, reasonable to do serology at that point because you'd expect antibodies to be positive. And the diagnosis is based on serology. You can do PCR um, on joint fluids and CSF. Um, it doesn't work particularly well for blood. Uh, and that, again, is a specialist test done by Ripple. But serology is the mainstay of diagnosis. And can you talk to us a bit about serology, when we should be requesting this and how to interpret it? Yeah. So I think if there if there's any systemic symptoms um, uh, and uh, you know, a, a more longstanding rash, it's reasonable to do serology uh, to try and get a serological confirmation uh, of the illness. Certainly, if you suspect any Lyme-related neurology, you must do serology then, I think. Uh, and... The samples um, are mostly done in local microbiology labs now as a screen, you know, a, a sort of screening serological test done by a local microbiology department. And most of them, if they get a positive or are concerned about the result, will refer the sample to Ripple for uh, more confirmatory tests. Uh, and you get an initial IgM response. Uh, and um, that usually occurs after two or three weeks after infection. Uh, and then at a later stage, you'll start to get a rise in IgG. So um, an IgG and or IgM is indicative of exposure to Lyme disease. Um, uh, obviously, the IgM comes up first, but, um, but unfortunately with Lyme disease, unlike some viral infections, the IgM seems to persist for months, if not years. So it doesn't necessarily imply a very acute infection if there is IgM present. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah. And it's interesting that you say it takes a few weeks to appear. So if you have someone in early stages of infection, i.e. up to three weeks, then really we we could test them, but we need to repeat the test to ensure that it hasn't developed further down the line. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And what what time frame would you be repeating the test? Well, after the first presentation, if you're concerned about Lyme disease uh, and you're concerned that Lyme disease is progressing, repeat it after four weeks. And and if they've had 
a full course of treatment if we've got a high suspicion and they've had a full course of treatment, would that impact on the serology? It, it does. There's probably not a lot of point in doing more serology if they've had a full course of treatment, because the full course of treatment is very effective. I think you can then reassure patients that the the um, bacteria have been eradicated. There is no resistance. Um, and um, antibodies in early treated Lyme will often either not develop or, or, or not increase. So you may get a false negative serology subsequently after treatment. Thank you. And um, where do we find treatment advice? Well, again, the, the, there's a good table in the NICE guidelines. If you Google uh, NICE um, uh, uh, Lyme, Lyme disease guidelines, there is a table there indicating the treatment options for each of the different presentations. But really, the most effective treatment is oral doxycycline. Uh, for, as I say, NICE recommend three weeks, uh, and that's that's effective in neurological Lyme as well as um, as well as the primary Lyme disease. If patients get admitted to hospital with severe neurolyme, they often get intravenous keftriaxone. Uh, but um, there's there's quite a bit of clinical evidence to show that oral doxycycline is effective for all the different stages. Thank you. And can you talk tell, talk to us a bit more about the sort of late stages of Lyme disease and their presentation after the early dissemination phase? Yes. Yeah. So there's, there's great debate and controversy around uh, whether chronic Lyme disease exists. Um, it, it certainly does exist to a certain extent because you can get chronic fatigue after Lyme, just as you can after many other infections. And that chronic fatigue can be, be very debilitating. Um, if you've had long-standing neurological Lyme and it's been untreated for some time, you will get some neurological damage. So you're likely to get persistent neurological symptoms as well, even though you eradicate the bacteria with a, with a course of treatment. So those are the aspects of chronic Lyme that are concerning. Um, there's plenty of so-called chronic Lyme that is not Lyme disease at all. And this is a bit of a social phenomenon. So Lyme disease exists in the Northern Hemisphere, but there is a big Australian uh, Lyme patient advocacy group. And there's been, for example, a, a an Australian government um, uh, commission to look into whether Lyme exists in Australia, and it does not. Uh, there's no evidence that's been found there. So there's a bit of a social phenomenon around chronic Lyme that has spread from uh, the east coast of the US. So you may get patients presenting with serology that they've ordered online from um, uh, unvalidated laboratories abroad, and those are very hard to interpret. Um, often these tests are quite sensitive, but they have very poor specificities. So there are lots and lots of uh, false positives. And indeed, CDC in the US have a whole web page on tests that are not recommended for Lyme. And most of these that are ordered online are not recommended. So we recommend that you use NHS tests and the patients you uh, request NHS tests if they're concerned about Lyme and not rely on these um, slightly dubious um, uh, online uh, foreign laboratory tests. I think it's sort of the media sort of often drive the Lyme disease hype as well, because if there are certain celebrities, for example, that are posting things online on Lyme's disease, that can really trigger sort of anxiety and people yes. wanting to get testing and treatment. Correct. Yes, we, we've looked at Google searches on Lyme disease, and every time a celebrity announces that they've got Lyme, um, be they Avril Lavigne or... Um, uh, or um, uh, you know, or, or similar celebrities, there's a huge peak in interest on Google on Lyme disease. And I'm sure quite a few um, presentations to primary care as a result. 
Thank you. So, so what I'm hearing is if we're getting a new Bell's palsy, a new radiculopathy, we should be thinking about Lyme's and requesting Lyme serology. If we have someone with chronic fatigue syndrome, for example, is there an indication to request Lyme serology for that? And how would we manage that if we got a positive test? Yeah, I mean, again, it's very difficult. You know, there, there are so many um, precipitators of chronic fatigue, of which a very small proportion will be Lyme disease. Uh, so in somebody with no objective signs, uh, it's, it's quite hard to recommend doing Lyme serology on every chronic fatigue. But I think... You know, if, if 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 there's any suggestion, there has been organic um, uh, uh, signs that that you know objective signs rather, um, uh, and they are in a risk category, and that they walk in the countryside and may have been bitten by a tick, it would seem reasonable to do serology just to uh, exclude it or confirm it. Because that does encompass most of our population down here in the New Forest, <laughs> and if we exactly. do have someone with chronic Lyme disease and they do have positive serology, would that be an indication for a three-week doxy treatment or how would we then manage? Yes, it would. Yeah. So so if you've got somebody with chronic symptoms who has a good going positive serology, uh, they should be treated for Lyme disease because then you can be sure that the bacteria have been eradicated uh, and that any persistent symptoms after that are not due to um, active persistent infection. But they may, of course, be, be due to uh, due to uh, inflammatory damage that's occurred as a result of the illness. So, so you wouldn't necessarily get immediate resolution of symptoms, but you're no. eradicating the sort of risk that that's causing ongoing pathology exactly. symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly. brilliant. That's a fantastic overview. Quick whistle-stop tour. So thank you very much. And my final Great. question is, we often are a bit confused with serology results, putting it into context. Who is the best person to contact for advice or support if we do have sort of clinical dilemmas? So, so the, the first point of call should be your local consultant microbiologist because they should all have some expertise in Lyme disease. But if it's a really complicated case uh, and you want to discuss it with one of the Ripple consultants, there is, if, if you Google the imported fever service, there is a 24-hour, although it shouldn't be necessary for Lyme disease, um, uh, uh, a number to call to speak to one of the consultants in Ripple. Wonderful. Thank you very much. We're sort of very um, lucky to have such a good service and such experts down here. So so we really appreciate that and all your input. But um, thank you very much for coming and talking today and for such a comprehensive overview. It's my pleasure, Camilla. Thank you very much. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.